This is Restless. Welcome back to the Restless Summer. I am your host on this postmortem on the Young Restless Reformed podcast, Matt. I am joined by Pastor Michael. Michael, how is it going today? I'm here. It is Restless Summer. It is uh, hot. I was at a coffee shop this morning, and maybe it's because it's Restless Summer, but uh, the air conditioning was broken at the coffee shop. So uh, while I was writing my sermon, it was uh, it was quite hot, but I didn't want to leave once I sat down just because of that. So I kind of stuck right. it out, and in uh, you know, I guess I guess I enjoyed it nonetheless. It's Restless Summer. You got to have a positive attitude. Yeah. Well, well, I'm glad today, even though I've just learned that even though it is the summer, you're going to make me talk about work. I'm glad we're at least joined by C.R. Wiley to do so. Pastor, author, um, I hear once he uh, read a Dr. Seuss book to a group of college students. You know, he has a he has a wide um, resume. So uh, C.R. Wiley, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Matt and uh, Michael. I'm glad to be with you guys. You can just call me Chris. Chris, great. Would you uh, would you just tell um, our listeners, and just in case they don't know, a little bit about, um, yeah, where you write, um, where they could find a little bit more of, of your stuff on the internet, uh, if they're interested? Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I write for lots of different things. Um, but the books that I've published recently are with Canon Press. Um, now, Man of the House, I think, uh, you know, the book that we're going to be talking about is not published by Canon Press. That's a uh, by resource publications, but um, I write for different uh, magazines. I had something just come out in Touchstone here not too long ago. I'm working on something for First Things right now. Uh, so I, I write in different places, and I enjoy that. I, I you know, um, very uh, honored and, and uh, you know, pleased that people actually want me to write for them. <laughs> I wrote something here for uh, uh, Desiring God here a couple weeks ago. So it, I'm in different places. And you but, are, and, can you, you know, explain maybe where you're at now? Um, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. what you do? Yeah, I, I serve a church in Battleground, Washington, and I'm actually in Washington right now. This is what state of Washington. I've got a, another property, another home in Connecticut. That's where I used to be, but I kind of go back and forth. Um, and um, so our vacation home is now in Connecticut, but I also own uh, investment real estate in Connecticut. And one of my sons uh, takes care of that stuff. So that takes me back there. Uh, every so often, and then now I'm here in the in battleground is in the greater Portland area, Portland, Oregon. So we're right across the Columbia River from from that place. So that, that's uh, where uh, I'm located, and um, I've been, you know, other things. As Matt noted, I, I was a college professor. I taught philosophy for about a decade, and I've been an investment, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a uh, commercial investment. Uh, real estate guy. So I've been doing that since the early nineties and I've also been a contractor. So building contractors. So those are some things I've done. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Chris and I, uh, uh, met briefly at this year's, uh, general assembly of the Presbyterian church in America. And, uh, my wife loved it because within, I don't know, three minutes of us talking, we started to talk about milking cows. Uh, so, <laughs> Uh, I don't think we're going to talk a lot about that today. Sorry, Am. Uh, I know you're going to listen to this and be a little bit disappointed in that, but uh, maybe maybe it'll come up. So uh, we wanted to have you on in part because we just like the idea of using this podcast to talk to people we're interested in. So that's <laughs> admittedly some of what we do. 
but also because we want to talk a little bit, and we've talked for a while about trying to have a conversation about um, the good and the importance of physical work and the physical world. And right. you seem to be somebody that's written a lot about this. You think a lot about it. So to set it up a little bit, um, you know, as we talk about the Young Restless and Reform Movement and New Calvinism, something that we very much came up through, you know, kind of out of uh, maybe kind of typical, what I sometimes think of as mainline evangelicalism, and just kind of moving uh, into a more uh, historic and confessional mold. Um, that came through the Young Restless and Reform. And within the, the YRR, uh, within New Calvinism, it seemed like the, the spiritual uh, good, the Christian life, um, these things all centered around a kind of pietism, uh, particularly often uh, more intellectual where it was, hey, you got to buy up a whole bunch of these books from these different guys, listen to sermons all the time, right? Uh, like that's, that's what you're doing um, in order to kind of show where you're at. Um, in this new uh, kind of Christian hierarchy in a sense. Uh, but, you know, as far as I can remember, I don't, I don't remember there being like a negative sense of kind of typical physical work, but I remember feeling that in order to be a good Christian, I basically had to pursue some form of ministry, whatever that looked like. Uh, and so, um, you know, as, as I kind of set the stage in that way, is that something that you've seen, interacted with, and why do you why do you think that is? Why do you think that the maybe more just kind of typical, practical, physical work component doesn't always breach into the typical view of the Christian life? Yeah, there's an irony to this, of course. Um, we're talking about the Reformed tradition, and the Reformers were big on, you know, uh, the glory of God in every endeavor and vocation being more broadly understood than strictly, uh, you know, the... the uh, ministry of word and sacrament yeah. so uh there's that but i think a lot of it just comes down to just the fact that a lot of the guys who were you know behind the the movement of new, the new calvinism were pastors and uh they wrote books that's why you felt like you had to buy their stuff you <laughs> they were promoting all of these things to to you know sort of further the, the movement along and that's okay but a lot of them are kind of one-dimensional men and they really they might they might praise or uh, encourage people to pursue uh, other means of livelihood and uh, and other vocations but they don't have any direct personal experience with a lot of this stuff hmm. so because of that they're just they just don't know much about it they, they haven't gotten involved in it so i think it really boils down to that i don't think now i, I do think that there is a kind of uh, I guess, carry over from the larger evangelical world where that really is the case where, you know, if you're really serious about the Lord, then you go into the ministry or whatever. Like, um, and that, again, is kind of a weird carryover from uh, Catholicism. Um, but even the Catholics will pay lip service to, the, to, to other legitimate, you know, ways of being, you know, sort of engaged with the world. But sometimes in, in, in very sort of, uh, I guess, fundamentalist or, uh, even uh, Pentecostal circles, there really is a sense that truly spiritual people don't money their hands with the physical world, or maybe they, maybe you have to to do physical things in order to free up time uh, for the spiritual things. They don't have a, a very, I think, uh, good model for understanding how these things actually are kind of wrapped up with each other. So anyway, that's my take. Yeah, 
I just remember how kind of uh, mind shifting it was for me when I discovered from my own reading, the doctrine of vocation from, yeah. from Luther and from the, from the right. reformers, because, you know, it was hard to believe because I, I have often said, I think much of the, whether it's campus ministry or interning with your church, it is in many ways, this new form of monasticism where yeah. this is, this is where you go to pursue the spiritual life and the other people, you know, it's great if they have money, they can, they can fund it or, right, you know, right, at least, right. 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 Um, or wish they could do it too, right? They can always kind of feel bad, but <laughs> but that it, it's a right when you when you start to really believe that God feeds the world because farmers farm, right? And or someone milks a cow, right? There it is. We're coming back to milking a cow because, as Luther said, right, when the, yes. the handmaid milks the cow, right? God right. milks the cow, right? It was um, it was a huge. It was a, just a. It was kind of a huge realization for me. I was interested in what you said about being um, one dimensional man. What, what would be, what is more of being a multi, like multi-dimensional um, human um, embodied human? What would that look like? Well, in the market economy, um, everyone's encouraged to specialize. And so if you're going to get good at anything, you got to focus. So there's no, you know, argument with there. And I think a lot of these guys, because they are vocational ministers, you know, they, this is their calling, uh, they focus and that's great. But historically, uh, many pastors did other things just to kind of live, you know, so, um, you know, when you think about, you know, the American uh, West, you know, sort of the, the Westward expansion, you know, the far, the Baptist farmer preacher, the, the Methodist circuit writer, um, these guys uh, were quite capable physically to take care of themselves. Um, there's that great song, the Reverend Mr. Black. I don't know if you're familiar with that country song, but the Reverend Mr. Black's a circuit writer and he's, he's uh, ministering amongst really tough men and he is the toughest of the men. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so I think there, there was just the, that reality, but that's largely gone now. Um, and it went the way of sort of the independent sort of, you know, sort of subsistence household. Now we're all kind of tied into these large institutions. And it's true for denominations. I mean, you know, Michael and I are in the PCA. I don't know where you are, Matt, but, you know, there's an institution that can just uh, kind of like absorb your entire life, all of your energies. Um, you know, you could just become a, a career, you know, sort of ladder climber kind of guy, but it's in the PCA, just like if you were at IBM or whatever. So uh, I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, I've been reading, I'm, you know, our listeners are going to hear this and uh, probably be like, man, he keeps bringing this up because I've been reading Wendell Berry um, as he talks about specialization. And um, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm of the opinion, uh, probably because I'm influenced by Berry, that, you know, there's a, there's a way in which such extreme specialization causes you to miss out on something, even just personally, right? So, um, you know, like you can, in order to exercise the, the fullness of humanity, you can't just exercise your intellect, for instance, you know, you're not made as purely an intellect. Um, you also have a physical body. You also, you know, there are different things, um, different aspects uh, to uh, what it means to be a man. Uh, but, uh, you know, kind of looking at it through that lens, what do you think being somebody who's 
not based on what you've told us. I mean, you're not somebody who, um, you know, was purely a specialist. You have been kind of in the intellectual world, the academic world. You have been uh, in the world of ministry. You've been in uh, the world of real estate and business and construction. So having kind of been in those different realms, um, what benefit is it when you're able to engage in these various different ways for you as now a pastor? Oh, there's an enormous benefit. Uh, I'm on the board, uh, for example, of a uh, developer, fairly large one in Seattle. And um, so I was at the most recent board meeting and believe it or not, I'm the only pastor on the board. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I was going on with that. But anyway, so, you know, this is a company that does like 50 to $100 million worth of business every year, you know, building subdivisions and just all kinds of stuff. And there's another guy who's on the board who's not, you know, part of the company. He's actually in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, in it, and owns a, a, an even larger development company. And he turns to me after we're in this meeting for a little while, and he looks at me quizzically, he says, you're a pastor? Now, this guy is a believer. This guy is not like somebody outside the church, but he's never come across somebody like me. So... Um, um, as we, as I've thought about it, you know, my, my background is a fairly weird sort of, um, hodgepodge of things. So my father was an academic. I grew up in the shadow of universities as a kid. So those, those bohemian artsy intellectual communities, uh, specifically in St. Louis and in Buffalo, New York, our family broke up a lot weird story. But anyway, I found myself in Western Pennsylvania, uh, as a teenager and, uh, was awarded the state, and I was sort of brought into the fold of a very blue-collar evangelical church mm-hmm. where all the guys were worked with their hands. And I was introduced to a very sort, different sort of man. I mean, the guys I had known as a kid, they were hippies, they were artists, they were intellectuals, they were they, they were everything that you associate with a college town. Uh, but these guys were all blue-collar worked in factories, worked for the railroad, worked with their hands every day. And they were, they were guys that I learned to respect and admire. And when it came t- t- time for me to, to, you know, work on, you know, uh, kind of getting through my, my, you know, uh, my education and higher education in, in the academy, um, I found myself in Kansas City and my, my wife's uncle. Now, my wife comes from a very similar family, but my family... Is un- was is unbelieving, so my extended family is made up of, of artists and academics and people who know really famous people, <laughs> but and so is my wife. But my wife's family is is a, a Christian family, and uh, but she has one uncle who was a contractor, and he was a pretty good commercial steel and concrete contractor in Kansas City, and I went to work for him while I was working my way through my first graduate program, and I enjoyed it. And then I, I actually, uh, after a time, went into business with some other guys who were seminary guys. There was about six or seven of us, and we were framers and built decks all over Kansas City. We would we would go to school in the morning with our pickup trucks and our in our truck boxes, and then you know after we finished you know the morning of school, we'd hop in those trucks and head out to the sites, and we worked the rest of the day uh, in the blazing, humid. Kansas City heat. <laughs> and uh, we would argue theology all the, the whole time that we're, you know, you know, hauling wood and, and cutting it and putting it, you know, using our nail guns and all that kind of stuff. And it was a lot of fun. It was great. And so what what that uh, prov- prepared me for 
uh, was a lifetime of sort of holding together, uh, working with my hands and working with my head. And uh, ever since I've just done both. I mean, I've just never found a need to like give up one for the other. Yeah. Yeah, I found uh, myself on a personal level. I just, I mean, I enjoy, I enjoy, you know, um, physical work of various kinds. Um, and I, I enjoy doing different things, right? So, I, you know, if I've been reading all day or, you know, preparing a sermon, I like uh, being able to go outside and do some, do some work and, you know, wrangle some animals and those sorts of things. Um by the way, before you move on, Michael, yeah. I want to say that there are a lot of intellectuals who wish they were in a spot like yours or mine. Hmm. They really are. Yeah. They, Why they is that? En- well, they envy the life, uh, you know, sort of the outdoor, you know, the, the freedom to work outdoors, the ability to work with your hands. So, for example, I was in Kansas City back when I was in Kansas City. My wife, my wife's uh, family was actually involved with the translation of the NIV. So uh, one of her uncles was the chairman of the translating committee. So he had a son who was an, an academic and a and very accomplished Harvard grad, went on to become uh, kind of a world-renowned psychologist and uh, actually was uh, John McCain's counselor, believe it or not. Wow. But anyway, so we were walking up some stairs uh, down on the plaza uh, to look at some fireworks and stuff like that. And he's, walk, he's coming up, he's, he's uh, behind me on the stairs and he says, says to me, and this is after he's like a world famous guy. <laughs> he says, I understand you're a carpenter. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he says, wow, that's so great. I wish I could do stuff like that. And I've had lots of conversations like that. Yeah, I think, I, I think there is something. So, I mean, this is something that I've had to, you know, work on um, over time because I, I, I am more naturally intellectual, I think, in that, you know, I enjoy just sitting and reading a lot. Um, this is where maybe my natural skill set lies. Um, but I have found uh, that it is of great benefit, um, even just intellectually, for me to be able to go out somewhere and do some, you know, uh, heavy physical labor. I, I've found it of great benefit in having a farm uh, to understanding a lot of the metaphors and analogies of scripture. Um, it, it like it just it comes to life in a way where like I, I get it, I understand it because I understand a little bit more, just a you know a pinch. I'm not you know I don't have a huge farm, um, but like I, I understand a bit more about um, some of these different images that Scripture uses. Uh, for instance, we have a, a hen right now who just uh, went broody and laid on some eggs and hatched her own chicks. And if you've never seen a hen with chicks that she hatched, it's amazing. Um, and when, you know, there's danger and she lifts up her wings and all these little chicks scurry under, and you can't even like, you know, we went to show some friends just last night, we went to show some friends, this, you know, new, uh, new, these new chicks with this hen. And we opened up, we had put them in a little cage cause we have dogs and things like that. So, um, they would get them, but she had laid them out in the elements. Uh, but we opened this up and you couldn't even see the chicks cause she's just sleeping on top of them. You just don't even see them. So we had to pick her up as she's you know, pecking <laughs> at us and kind of push her off with a stick right. just to see them. But like now this idea that God, like, uh, you know, mother hen who lifts up his wings for the protection of his people, like that's all of a sudden an image that I just, I had, you know, I knew the idea, but all of a sudden I've seen it in person and in nature in a way where I, I feel that I understand it um, at a, at a much deeper level. So I found tremendous benefit in this. 
Yeah, and I think that there's a way that this makes it possible for us to relate to particularly blue-collar people uh, in ways that I don't think many sort of uh, cerebral academics, sort of you know, sort of scholarly-oriented pastors, even know they that they they're not relating to them. So you know, I, I've found myself over the years um, actually uh, able to really have great relationships with blue-collar guys in my churches. Uh, particularly when they discover not only uh, do I do some of the things they do, but I actually respect them uh, mm. and not just simply acknowledge them as doing something important. Yeah. How has this, um, I'm going to, I have a few questions on this, but I won't, I'll come back to one at the end as the suburban, uh, suburbanite city, you know, city slicker here. Um I, I'm interested, even as um, I've, you know, the PCA, for example, here in Wisconsin is trying to plant in going out from communities to plant, right? They're, you know, largely centered Michael and the church I'm a member of where he's a pastor being the exception, you know, coming from Madison, Milwaukee, right? Very urban, much more intellectual in general, though not, you know, exclusively coming to wanting to plant in cities that are going to be more of a mix of blue collar going to be more rural. And so my question is, how have you seen, you know, you coming to respect you coming to be able to engage with them? How is this, this kind of, um, yeah, work both affected your ministry or even just your under, you know, as Michael talked about a little bit of his understanding of theology there. Well, I think we've touched on some of that. I think mm-hmm. um, I think that uh, Christians, uh, because of the incarnation, because of our um, because of our conviction that when God said it is good, He really meant it when in creation, <laughs> and that includes this physical world. The uh, you know I think all of these things uh, are things that we confess, but. Uh, that we confess them strictly with our mouths and we don't uh, have ways to affirm them physically by actually engaging with the world much. And as I said, this is sort of the, the, uh, the sort of the, the, the inevitable outcomes of specialization and um, the industrial revolution and, and all the stuff that we, we uh, don't want to lose. Um, you know, I'm all, I'm all for air conditioning and antibiotics and I like keep them. <laughs> so, right. but um, I think, um, there, there really needs to be some effort uh, given or uh, exercised uh, in some directions that maybe in the PCA we're not typically very good at, but maybe some other denominations are. So, you know, I think that uh, when it comes to the efforts, you know, let's just pick on the PCA for a little bit. It's our sure. home. We can do that. Um, one of the things that I think is uh, laudable is the desire to go out and connect with people who aren't sort of like us, you know, sort of right. find themselves in our churches and so forth. Now, some sometimes, well, I think most of the time that gets that gets uh, expressed when it with regard to like certain subcultures or maybe uh, certain uh, ethnic groups, and that's great. Don't have any problem with any of that. But there's really not much interest, as as far as I've seen in the PCA, in getting involved with blue collar people or rural people mm-hmm. or so forth. We, maybe it's just because we've sort of like, well, that's the Baptist territory. We're not going to try to get in there and, and compete with those guys. They're so much better at it than we are. Maybe that's why. I don't know. 
I, but I, I'm, I think that maybe is giving our leaders too much credit. <laughs> I just, I don't even think that they think about them. I, I just think right. that they, they more or less uh, don't, uh, but by their behavior, prioritize them. Uh, I've, right. I've yet to be at a, at a general assembly where there's some big presentation from mission to North America that's focused on blue collar white people. It's just, I've never seen it. Right. Um, anyway, some thoughts. Yeah. I, no, I think that's really good. And, and um, I haven't, I've, we, people who listen know I'm actually um, in the process of receiving a call uh, to begin church planning in rural and blue collar people here in the Midwest. And I Great. often say, one of my goals is to make Presbyterianism normal again, right? It, this, <laughs> connect it with this, this normal life. Um, but give, I think in, you know, and I'll try and remember them off the top of my head. For people who are disconnected, as specialization, as we, as most people work for a huge corporation, I think in Man of the House, you give, uh, I think it's two or three um, just ways someone can start kind of getting embodied. And I think there was gardening and thrift. And is the other one being a neighbor? Um, right. Can you talk yeah. just about like, you can, you can cover other things, but just these seem to me, someone who grew up in the suburbs, lives in the suburbs, right? Um, don't, doesn't have a family farm, probably will not have access to that if land prices continue <laughs> in their direction. Yeah. Right, but, right. but those, I, what I loved is those seemed like very, because we're talking about practical work. These were very practical things you could begin to learn and take action on kind of almost no matter where you were coming from. Yeah, yeah. You know, beginning with gardening, you can do it anywhere, even if you have like a container garden in a high rise apartment or whatever. And and once you get the gardening bug, once, once you actually see just the marvelous uh, way that God made the world and how miraculous just normal, normal sort of like uh, processes are with regard to, you know, growing vegetables and stuff. Yeah, uh, you, you kind of get the bug and you just want to do it more and more and more. At least that's my experience. Um, mm. And I've seen it with lots of people. I, I came across this marvelous quotation from uh emperor diocletian here the other day he he was like the only emperor who who like retired he's sort of like benedict he just said i'm tired of this i want to just go out in the country and do my own thing and they kept bringing him back out of retirement you know begging him to come back and he and he and he he writes this letter and he says you don't understand i grew some cabbages with my own hands they're beautiful (laughs) (laughs) he actually says that it's great I love now, we, that. That's awesome. <laughs> we remember him for some other unfortunate things, but, you know, including <laughs> persecution. But uh, but I think, though, that um, once you get the bug, you know, it's it's great. You don't want to let you know, you don't want to, you know, sort of like just go back to just sort of this uh, antiseptic life where you just, oh, you know, disconnected from the earth. So I think that's a big thing. I think um, when it comes to the other things I suggested, you know, I think, you know, the neighborliness thing is just a being friendly. And, and my wife is far better at that than I am. You know, she's, mm. she's uh, able to uh, walk up to somebody's house that she's never, you know, you know, with people that she's never met and they immediately like her and invite her in. Now you, they see me coming and their defenses go right up. They think I'm selling something. You hear you know, the door lock. Uh-oh. <laughs> that's yeah. right, that's right. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why women historically have been the glue of, of small communities. You know, they're the ones who connect. They're like the connective tissue. Um, they know each, you know, they know who lives where and, and, you know, they know about the children. They know about the elderly people. They know about all these things. And it's really important uh, for them to do that work. There's 
because they can do things that, that men generally are unable to do. Um, what was the third thing? I can't remember what I was. Uh, thrift, I think, is oh, the third yeah, thrift. Yeah. from the book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, and that's another big thing where you're just, you know, trying to make as much, you're trying to make do as much as you can with, with what you have. It's sort of a subsistence economy kind of thing as much as possible rather than relying uh, too much on the market and new things. And that means repair. That means, uh, you know, reusing things. It's very hip. You know, it's all about the recycle, reuse and all that kind of stuff. You know, and it, what's funny about some of this stuff is, is and I've noticed this with different people is that, you know, the further right you go and the further left you go, you go around the world and you meet on the other side. So there's this, <laughs> so, you know, you end up when you become really sort of socially conservative and thrifty and wanting to go back to the ways of your ancestors, you, you, you discover that there are people who've moved in the other direction have come around on the other side and do the same things you do. So I'm, you know, over the years, I've known people on the left who've homeschooled and, you know, gardened and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, you end up, you know, having some things in common with those people, even though you may not have much in common. By the way, there is a guy outside right now with a, with a leaf blower. So he should be gone here pretty soon if you hear some noise. <laughs> all right. But, Great. No, so I, this, I do, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Michael. No, I've had a few questions. Take it well, out. so, you know, we've kind of... Uh, you know, danced around it uh, a little bit, which by the way, um, you know, so we're talking a lot about uh, Man of the House, uh, which Matt and I both recommend. If you're listening and you haven't read it, um, this is a book. Matt has mentioned that he's given it out to people and um, I try to give it basically to every young man that's graduating anything <laughs> if they're if they're capable of reading um but uh this is a after, book if after you, the show michael after the show michael we'll decide how we'll give away at least a copy of it yeah we will so, that's great yeah so we'll great. we'll figure out a way to to uh give a copy away um and if you go to the restlesspodcast.com and go to the recommended reading tab um we have a bunch of books that we've recommended man of the house is on there on one of the lists and uh if you use that link to buy it we get a little bit of a kickback from it. So, um, right. so there's a little uh, plug for that. Uh, but uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, man of the house, I found excelled in when I read it and enjoyed it, having read many books about uh, maybe Christian manhood and marriage and the household. Yours was one of the first books that dealt with practical realities instead of simply maybe like, you know, exegeting a part of Proverbs or something like that. And you do some exegesis, you, you deal with the scripture, but you also go uh, much broader. Um, could you give a little bit of maybe just a, you know, give us the landscape of the book in general um, and what you were trying to accomplish by it? Well, hey, I'm happy to. Uh, there are a couple things to kind of keep in mind as I, as I talk about this. One of the things that I was reacting to was the tendency with lots of the stuff that I saw uh, written for men. Uh, it struck me that most of the stuff was uh, sort of psychologically oriented. Like this is like the male psychology and this is why we need to give guys, you know, room to be wild or whatever, you know, <laughs> or why, why we need to have men's uh, Bible studies or whatever. And, you know, that's okay. I, I know I'm, I'm fine with, it's not like I'm against those books, but I just saw this whole, and because I've got a background in classical philosophy, I knew that there were, you know, resources in, in the Western tradition that took an entirely different approach to understanding the nature of manhood and, and so forth that apparently uh, 
many of the people who wrote those other books were unaware of. And because of that, you know, because I've got a background in Aristotle and Xenophon and so forth, I, I, I knew about these, these resources. And I thought, what if I were to just write a book that was designed to kind of do what those works did, which was actually provide a handbook, you know, for men in antiquity, like Xenophon's Oikonomikos was probably, if they had, if they had Barnes and Noble, it would have been right next to like uh, the millionaire next door, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, rich dad, poor dad. It was just that kind mm -hmm. of popular work. Uh, I believe Cicero translated it into Latin. You know, it's just, everybody knew yeah. about it. And wow. I believe that, I believe the apostle Paul knew about it. In fact, I think the household codes that we see in Colossians and in Ephesians, in some sense, are an endorsement of kind of the, uh, the, the working of the household economy that was very common in the in antiquity. It's not like Xenophon and, and, and Aristotle sat down and said, I'm going to make up something completely out of, out of, out of nothing and sell it to people. He would, they were just observers. They just observed, okay, this is how households, is, households function. This is what you need. Uh, this is the role of a man in a household. This is the role of a woman in a household. And then, you know, the apostle Paul took it and said, oh, he baptized it. He said, okay, we're, we're Christians. We're, we affirm that, that this is part of the created order. A household economy is part of that. Uh, how do we understand this as Christians? Wow. Well, look at this. It seems uh, very clear that Christ corresponds to the husband, the church corresponds to the wife. And so there's kind of built into the very fabric of the reality that we live in this created order, these types that are fulfilled in the gospel. So anyway, that I, that's that was my initial approach. And then when it comes to the practical stuff, that's what those handbooks were. They were just entirely yeah. focused on how to make it work, what what successful households uh, were, how they were organized and, and run. And there are a lot of things that will surprise people if they actually go back and read this stuff. Most of the most of the stuff that feminists write is uh, actually libelous. It, it doesn't actually introduce you to the world uh, that people lived in in the past. If you actually get into the literature, you find a whole different sort of way of thinking that, that is actually obscured by most woke writers. And if you, if you actually get into the original materials, you'll, you'll see all of the inconsistencies and the things that, are, that we're not told about and stuff like that. But... Anyway, that was my approach and why my, my stuff had this sort of practical uh, dimension, because I, I, I believed that and I still believe that what we need to do is understand the functional and the symbolic character of the husband, the function and the symbolic character of the wife and mother. And when we, when we have those two features, so like man of the house is getting to the functional side of a man's work in the home. In a household, I, I I only deal with the wife's work only sort of briefly. Um, some people have encouraged me to, to write something along that line, but I've always said that's for a woman to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, and then my book uh, Household and Work for the Cosmos deals more with the sort of the the symbolic character of the household and how it helps us understand not just how we sort of work in this world, but how it the the, the household actually is a kind of a, 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 a sign of the world to come. It's a, it's, it points us to the eschaton. But anyway, um, so those are my, those are my thoughts and, and, and why the particularly man of the house was practical. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, we'd recommend um, anybody pick it up. You know, it was one of the first uh, 
you know, books about uh, a man's role in the household that I read that one dealt with the household, actually, interestingly enough, uh, but also that, you know, had things to say about inheritance and uh, productive property and and these sorts of concepts that um, I think are are really helpful. And they just, I think that they help, uh, they help almost like a map, kind of actually show you like where, this is where you find an expression, this expression of, you know, what it means to be a man. Um, it's, it's in this context, right? Um, often I think uh, masculinity or, or men's books deal with basically a completely contextualist uh, reality where it's just like, this is just, you know, who you are, but it's in a vacuum. Mm. And I just don't find that helpful. Um, I, I think most don't. Um, it's, it's hard to live that like different, different uh, seasons and, and uh, situations bring different things. But um, I think you, you help bring a helpful context to it. And I think Chris has said this in multiple ways, which I think is interesting. I was just having a conversation uh, with someone going to be a church planter today. And I was talking about how I think it is actually really good for pastors and Christians in general to have to deal with these physical realities that are common to everyone, right? That it, it, there's a reason, I, I would assume, that there was an expectation that the pastor could at least do some farming on his own, right? That there's a, there's a very, you know, even if it's the pastor, you know, that can do some of the fixing, like fix his own things. He can, he can engage in those things. And just, you know, obviously Chris has mentioned it, puts you in contact with people that you would have almost nothing else in common with, which is good. But, but even just the connection to the ordinary, you know, quote, I don't know if that's the right word to call it. This ordinary life, this normal life is maybe there's added work. Maybe there's added things you have to think about, but I think that that is, is good. And I think is what is often missing with a lot of the, you know, even uh, in these like, in many of these kind of missional contexts, right? Because it is, we're going to do the spiritual intellectual thing for all of the people who have to live their normal lives. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, those are great observations. And I think the challenge when you become kind of a guy who can do a range of things is kind of organizing your time. Uh, right. you know, Mike, Michael got into this a little bit. I, you know, I, and I think that that's, that's a very, you know, uh, worthwhile thing to reflect on. I've got my own approach. I imagine you guys have your approach. But, but the challenge at that time, you know, when it, when it comes to you, now I've got all these things I can do, then, then the challenge is time management. <laughs> it's hard. I'll say that. Right. It's hard. Um, you know, we have, we have lots going on in my home. My, my wife is similar to me in that we like, I mean, we like, we like accomplishing things. We like building things. We, you know, kind of um, have a lot of entrepreneurial goals, but we also then tend to, uh, let's say bite off more than we can chew. And so, yeah, time management, it's, it can be hard. Uh, well, let's, with the last little bit of time we have, um, I just want to talk with you about this idea that I've heard you talk about uh, on the theology podcast at one point, and maybe in your writing, it shows up some, um, I think it does at least in spirit, but you've talked about this idea of the blue collar scholar. And um, so could you, could you elaborate on, on what that is and why, there might be some help with the things we've been talking about, kind of bringing it to bear more on the academic sphere, how that can be of benefit um, in the area of the academy. 
<clears throat> Pardon me. Yeah, yeah, glad to. That's one of my favorite things to talk about. So um, something to consider, is, you know, when we think about this subject is the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest intellectuals in the history of the West and the world in general, could work with his hands. You know, he was a he was a tradesman. He, he uh, made tents. And I don't I don't know what that what you know was you know, involved uh, what that involved in terms of the entire process. But there was a physical component. There was a sales component. I imagine that the Apostle Paul was a good haggler. You know, he wasn't probably a guy who just paid asking price. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Think oh, yeah. about that. You know, uh, how many of our 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 past our, our colleagues in the ministry would we turn to and say, could you help me negotiate this deal? Paul could do that for you. <laughs> but anyway, so he was he was accomplishing a range of things. Also, um, there is a there's a great little book entitled Blue Collar Intellectuals that came out maybe uh, maybe 20 years ago, which gives you some background on some guys who were who, who made some pretty significant contributions to their fields of uh, interest, uh, their studies, their field, you know, their sort of scholarly con- concerns who were blue collar in terms of their childhoods and even their outlook. I thought that was good. Another great book is uh, Shop Classes Soulcraft by Matthew Crawford, where we have a guy who had a background somewhat like mine uh, in the sense that he, uh, you know, he grew up in Berkeley in the 60s. Both of his parents were academics. And then, you know, what do you do uh, when you want to rebel as a teenager and your hip parents are hippies, you know, you uh, actually, what you, what you have to do is you need to subscribe to Soldier of Fortune magazine and learn how to work on cars. <laughs> and that's what he did. And uh, wow. then he then he went on to get his PhD at the University of Chicago and went on to be a think tank guy and now owns a motor motorcycle repair shop in Virginia and uh, writes book at Writes writes books and travels in his spare time, <laughs> but he's an he's wow. an, he's an, he's a he's a fun guy. I don't know him personally, but I like I like everything that he's written that I've read. Um, so I the I sort of the uh, what you aspire to is this kind of um, head and hands balance in your life, where each kind of a, you know sort of reinforces the other. If you do give yourself over to the life of the mind, something to think about is generally speaking. There's a, there's a marvelous book out there entitled uh, Daily Rituals. Uh, I can't remember the name of the author. I think it's Mason is his name. Anyways, he gives you like these vignettes of intellectuals and artists and so forth describing their daily routines. And huh. everybody from Mozart to Kierkegaard huh. to Darwin. And what you learn is that even though they sort of scheduled their, their days, you know, sort of their, their to-do list differently, most of them, the vast majority of them, I would say as, as you know, higher percentages, 80 to 90% of them did all of their creative intellectual work uh, in less than four hours a day. Wow. So what I've done is I, for me, the mornings are set aside for the intellectual work. And then the rest of the day uh, is divided up between sort of this, sort of the administrative and physical work uh, stuff and then, you know, getting together with people and so forth. So, so my mornings, generally speaking, are this, are sacred. You know, they're set aside for reading, for writing, that kind of stuff. Sermons, articles for magazines, books I'm working on. But by the time noon comes around, I'm done. I'm just like, okay, that's it. I'm enough, enough egghead stuff. <laughs> I'm going to go <laughs> and uh, work on one of my apartments. Uh, or I'm going to go and work, I know, on the garden. Or I'm going to go and meet with so-and-so for lunch. That kind of stuff. And, you know, uh, the administrative stuff is also with regard to a church, you know, you know, wrapped up in that, too. 
as a pastor, one of the things I've observed is if your church is going, if your church is growing in the, in, you know, sort of the, the Lord is blessing sort of the fellowship of the church. You're not in any major crisis. People don't spend a lot of time thinking about what's the pastor doing right now. You know what, you know, basically when they, when they start uh, getting concerned about your daily routine is when there's a perceived problem, you're not meeting budget, you know, church is not growing, those kinds of things. So uh, kind of the, the, I guess the message is, is things, is, is if things are going well, you have a lot more freedom in the ministry to sort of mix it up. If you're in crisis, uh, then everybody, I think justifiably expects you to be, you know, completely on task with the problems. Sure. Yeah. So uh, if you have that kind of ability to kind of move into crisis mode when you need to, um, you know, in every church, even successful churches is going to have crisis periods, then that's another thing to keep in mind. Don't be too sort of rigidly committed to like, well, I can only handle this crisis, uh, you know, between the hours of one and three. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, sometimes you just put everything on hold and focus on the crisis, you know, deal with the issues. So you need to have a kind of, I think, uh, good common sense awareness of what you need to do at any given time, but also a sense that it's okay for you to, to have a range of things that you're, you're engaged in if things are going, going well. Yeah. It seems to me that having, you know, when, when you're engaged in the created order, um, you know, I mean, it's easy to uh, get in your head and there is an order, right. When it comes to the life of the mind and when it comes to um, thought and philosophy and, and things like this. Um, but when you're engaged in the, the, the physical world order, you're much more likely to uh, recognize the limits that you have, whether that be your own, like, you know, physical endurance, whether that be, you know, there are certain things that you can't do, right? You can't build a building this certain way, right? You, you have to square things up according to how things really are, as opposed to how you would like them to be in your I ideal mind. Um, so by the, when by, you by do the way, that, Michael, oh, yeah. by the way, Michael, I, I, to that point, most of the woke stuff that we're dealing with right now uh, is promoted uh, by people completely out of touch with the physical world. Mm. They, <laughs> they, they, they have uh, crazy ideas about how things can be done and work. Um, they, they never experienced uh, the physical limitations that anyone who actually works with his hands understands and deals with every day. Yeah. It stops it you, right? It, it keeps you, you can't be an idealist in the real world. Um, you're like, you're, you're stopped at some point, uh, but it's within those bounds that you actually learn, I think, uh, the kind of creativity and response to God's order and how you can then fit into that and how you can build within it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me say as the person most behind in this category, I think one, yes, the, the, the ability to pursue woke agendas is totally out of a high, such a high position of privilege, right? Whenever, you know, I talk to a number of people who are worried at their job, their corporation, right, that they're going to be forced to do these things. And I'm like, here's my backup plan, man, go drive trucks, yeah. <laughs> like go drive semi trucks that you will be <laughs> forever insulated from these things right? right you know go you know go go engage in go engage in any trade become a solar panel installer like learn yeah. to do that right you will be forever um sheltered from that and and i think the secondary thing with this idea of the created order for someone who i probably naturally pursue life of the mind these kinds of things is it is just so humbling 
because I have to figure out a way to get my basement framed together right. and I'm not good at it. And it's, and there's things I, I have to do it and I have to do it in a certain way. And, you know, it takes time, it takes effort and it won't bend to me. I can't convince, I can't convince the two by fours the way I want to do it. Right. I have to go with them. Right. Hierarchies form in the physical world for re for a reason. So like mm -hmm. when I was on a framing crew, the, the best framer was the guy we all uh, listened to. It was, you know, it, it, there wasn't a vote. <laughs> you know, when you, when you, when you, when you become a framer, guess the, guess what you do, uh, you know, right off the bat, you haul wood and you watch and you hold the other end of the board. You know, this is one of the reasons why um, when, when you look at, when you look at the uh, United States Department of Labor Statistics and sort of the distribution of men to women in various professions, this is why the trades are always dominated by men uh, and why certain other uh, vocations are dominated by women. There really are physical advantages that men possess and physical advantages women possess in certain areas. So like when I was, you know, my, when I just started off as a framer and, you know, the, the truck from the lumber yard would dump its, uh, its pallet of, of material and we had to move it, you know, move that materials, you know, uh, piece by piece, you know, up a hill, uh, you know, maybe even across some sort of unlevel terrain, the guy who could pick up two, two sheets of um, plywood on his own and hold them over his head and just walk that over uh, was more profitable <laughs> than, than the two people that were required to, to lift one of those pieces of, of plywood, you know, over the same terrain. Guess who got paid more? So these are the things that happen uh, when you're out there in the physical world on the ground. And so there, and, and for, for the last 30, 40 years, there has been a concerted effort by progressive to get women into the trades and they keep, they keep uh, just leaving it's <laughs> because they can't, they can't do the work. Mm. There's no, there's no insult in this. This right. is just, this is just the reality on the ground. Until we make robots who do it all for us, this is the way it's going to be. And rather than commiserate over it, let's celebrate it. Let's just say, hey, you know, babe, you do things I can't do. I do things you can't do. That's why we need each other. <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's just like it, you know, it's not, it, well, it didn't used to be. It didn't used to be an insult that men couldn't give birth, right? That was just, you know, as part. Now, I, now I know that is a little bit edgy, but, uh, you know, that usage is how it is, right? Yeah, and, and, and genuine blue collar people have no problems with this fact. It's, it's generally, it's generally the, the, the two gals, you know, who are living on the edge of the campus in that Bohemia community with, and they've got purple hair. Uh, and one of them wants to be a man who has the issue with that. I mean, they're not, they, they're just out of touch with the physical world. They don't, they don't, they think of the physical world as an imposition, a mm. limitation, not a yep. gift. Yeah. I mean, this is, this kind of goes to, uh, you know, a lot of what uh, C.S. Lewis talks about in the abolition of man. And then, you know, uh, puts into narrative form in that hideous strength, uh, both of which I've just read somewhat recently again. And so uh, they're on my mind, but um, the same mentality that, you know, uh, comes to nature and finds these limits and says, you know what, I'm like, I'm going to break some of these. I can get over some of these. I can get around them. I can use technology 
to force my hand against the grain of reality. Um, this is the same impetus that eventually leads to the abolition of man. I mean, this is the, this is the, the same move. And so here too, I think, you know, having these limits, if, you know, if you are uh, more intellectual, by the way, if you're, you know, listening to this and you don't, you're like, well, I don't have a trade. I'm more of an academic, or maybe I'm more of a, you know, kind of pastor theologian or, or what have you, um, you know, obviously we're not saying that's bad. You know, we're not saying books are bad, you know, uh, you know, Chris has written several books we've talked about here. Yes. And I like books. Yes. Yeah, right. Buy my books. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and, uh, so we're, we're not anti-intellectual in any, in any way. Um, and so if you're hearing this and you're like, I don't know, you know, I don't know where to go or what to do about this. Um, I think it'd be good for uh, maybe each of us to give a little bit of maybe just some practical help here at the end for those who want to try to engage in this kind of work. Um, I would start by simply saying, if, if you want to engage in say thrift, for instance, like we've talked about, um, meaning something breaks in your house. And instead of, I'm just going to go buy a new one, or I'm going to pay somebody to come and repair this. You want to try to fix something on your own. It might seem really intimidating, right? Your washing machine goes out. It might seem really intimidating. Um, but one of the benefits of living when we do is you've got YouTube and I'm telling you, YouTube has everything. I'm not mechanical by nature. I'm, I'm not very handy, um, by nature, uh, but simply having the help of YouTube has saved me a lot of money over time and also just given me confidence as I've done more work. And it might take a long time. You might be in the middle of a job and realize I don't have half of the tools I need. Um, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Then you go and get them. Uh, but there are ways to do it. Also, like find somebody that you know that is handy and ask them for help because almost 100% of the time, they're probably willing to help. Um, you find a guy in your church that, you know, is more of a craftsman, um, you know, does construction, does, you know, uh, more mechanical work. And if you have something that breaks, you know, call them up and just say, Hey, you know, would you be willing to just come help me and maybe teach me a little bit in the process? Uh, we're in a time when a lot of men did not grow up maybe with fathers or fathers who, you know, really help them learn these things. Uh, but there are plenty of fathers in the church that, you know, will be more than willing to help you, I think. So that's my, my little tidbit I thought of. Any practical advice from you guys? Well, I think that the advice you gave is so good because I actually think maybe more than against intellectualism, I think oftentimes when people hear about, probably when they hear Michael on our podcast referencing his you know small family farm or even Chris, you talking about, let's go back to the ways of the ancestors, talking about Xenophon, right? I think it can come across as like, people can experience it who live in a city, live in a suburb. Well, I guess they're just against all this technology, right? All the actual benefits, which obviously neither of you are. And I think that figuring out how to leverage technology for both your intellectual pursuits and practical pursuits, right? This is, this is the great benefit we have. You can begin to learn both of these things where you are, wherever you are, right? You can learn to plant a garden today if you want to. You can, you could begin, you know, selling old things on eBay today, if you want to, right? There's, there are many things you can begin to do because of technology. You can, you know, if you want to begin a, 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 a master's or a high level degree, you could begin doing that today online, or you could get access to that education without the degree, right? If that's not, you don't need the, the certificate or you can't afford it at this point, right? That, 
but this is the huge benefit of when we live, right? This is the benefit. This is an embarrassment of resources we have to start. Yeah, Matt, I think that's right. I think the marvelous thing about uh, the, the information revolution that we uh, see and that we're taking advantage of right now is the, the ability to bring together things that many people didn't think could ever be reconciled. Right. So uh, I've got uh, a few entrepreneurs in my church here. One of them, uh, he, his company employs about 25 people. It's a software firm. And um, all of his top level guys work from home. And, uh, and, and a number of them are in my church and they all have huge gardens. They've got livestock. <laughs> they, you know, so they're in the office and then they're going outside to, you know, to help birth a goat. <laughs> that <laughs> kind of awesome. thing. Yeah, every day. And, um, uh, and so I, I do think we are at a time where we could enjoy the best of both worlds. Um, the Industrial Revolution was a blessing. It came at a high cost. But I think that's, that some of the things we lost in the Industrial Revolution can be re recovered. Yeah. If, if we're mm. creative, if we dedicate ourselves to the task, I think that we can we can enjoy what our ancestors enjoyed and still be able to enjoy air conditioning. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I do think that is even probably a practice. There's and we're, we're running out of time, but the uh, the ability to work from home and the things that opens to your family and to you is probably another huge, you know, a huge thing. Um, but for someone to consider consider what that might mean for them um but, yeah hey maybe well, last thing pick up man of the house uh there's there's mm -hmm. a reading goal there's a lot more practical advice in there and we'll we'll try to link it to uh in the in the podcast description in the notes of the show so that you can find it there or like we said you can uh just go just go look it up anywhere and uh highly recommend it so chris you know thanks so much for coming on this was a blast always really uh enjoy talking with you and hearing from you well, thanks, Michael. And thanks, Matt. I was really honored to be invited and, uh, and I hope everything goes well for your podcast. Thank you, Pastor Chris Wiley, for coming on the show, talking to us about working. Pastor Michael, it's always great to get to record with you. We've got to go, though. It's been Restless Summer. This has been an awesome episode. Please check out his book if you haven't, and join me in trying to learn to be a little more well with your hands, like the Apostle Paul. So, shout out to our tradesmen. We'll catch you guys next week.